Hello everyone and welcome to another episode of Paddock Chat, a West Midlands Group original podcast created to keep local growers in the loop without having to leave the paddock. My name's Erin O'Brien and I'm the Beef Industry Development Officer at the West Midlands Group. In this episode, Nathan Craig sat down with Nathan Dovey and Phil Honey from Sterlings to Coast to talk about how they are helping local producers to integrate new technologies to develop more connected farms. The information provided in this podcast is general in nature and may not be wholly appropriate for your purposes or situation. We recommend that you seek appropriate professional advice before implementing actions based on the information provided in this podcast. In this episode, I caught up with Nathan Dovey and Phil Honey from Sterling's to Coast Farmers, who are a grower group just like the West Midlands group based down in Albany. Over the past few weeks, I've had some casual conversations with both Nathan and Phil on, on the topic of how to make the move into having a more connected farm where technology starts to replace some of the more mundane and, and routine tasks around the farm. So if you think trough and tank monitoring or security cameras on your back gate, it's just not a simple case, I don't think, of just hooking up a camera and, and, and you're good to go. So Today, we're going to talk through a little bit about project that Sterling's to Coast have been uh, running over the past year or two to see what their experience has been in moving towards a connected farm. So if I could just get uh, Phil to introduce yourself and Nathan as well. Hey, I'm Phil from Sterling's Coast Farmers. I'm the Smart Farms Coordinator based down in Albany. And my role is to um, help farmers adopt digital technologies and uh, de-risk some of the adoption around it. Yeah, so my name's uh, Nathan Dovey, CEO of Sterling's Coast. Coast farmers, as Nathan Craig said, which um, causes a lot of a lot of confusion us to Nathan's running grower groups, but that's another story. Um, I grew up at Many Peaks, just east of Albany, about fifty k's east of Albany. For those that know it, on a mixed farm, um, and I've been working at Stanley Coast. I think going into my sixth year now. So, yeah, that's me. Phil, can you give us a bit of an overview of of your project you've been working on in terms of connected farms? Yeah, definitely. So the Connected Farms sort of project or Smart Farms Initiative is what we call it down here, uh, formally kicked off in around late 2019, early 2020, and it was supported with some industry government grants that we were successful in with Department of Primary Industries and Regional Development in WA. And the whole premise behind it was is to develop two smart farms and trial a range of technologies and sort of work out what's going to work and what's not going to work. So we have a smart farm uh, located northeast of um, Albany, sort of east of that Albany Highway, um, which is predominantly looking at 100% cropping sort of enterprise. And we've also got a second farm slightly west of that in Kendanup, and that's a, a mixed crop livestock enterprise. And both around that sort of 4,000 hectare mark, but both, yeah, family sort of background farms and different levels of tech adoption and sort of um, quality of internet connection there as well. And so you're looking to get uh, connectivity across the whole farm? What, what's the kind of aim there? Do you, yeah, so connectivity, um, really, the premise behind it all is, is that all of the stuff that we do has to come back to a dashboard. So bolstering that internet connectivity was really important. So a uh, majority of the local farmers down here are relying on a particular Telstra um, 3G, 4G connection, but we were lucky enough to um, be part of the digital farm grant. And what that effectively enabled us was um, whole farm 4G LTE connections through a company called Pivotel. 
And basically what that is is it's developed um, a mini Telstra network and it's involving eight or nine towers throughout our area and um, it's really quite a solid internet connection. Um, what we're really seeing is, is that a lot of the farmers had issues with speed and quality connections. So cell phone towers, the more users you have connected up to them, the slower your internet is. And so we had sort of internet connections around that half a megabit connection, um, which is really, really quite slow in today's sort of speed. Um, up to around sort of 5 to 10 megabytes, uh, sorry, megabits per second. With the whole Pivotel network, we're now seeing speeds around 50 megabits, so, you know, quite a significant um, increase. And what that effectively results in is, is a better connection for us to look at devices, but it's also peace of mind and, and also um, sort of supports mental health because at the end of the day, whilst it's great looking at farming all day, you sort of want to go home and be able to watch Netflix or KO Sports and uh, not worry about it buffering. And has that been that coverage been right across the farm or are there still blinds, you know, dark spots in the farm? Yeah, so we're sort of a little bit unlucky sort of compared to some of the farms up north. We have quite a fair bit of elevation changes, so there are a few valleys that we aren't lucky enough to get coverage in um, or we might find that there, there are other factors like trees and, and hills in the way which sort of block internet from going to a house. So uh, we've been able to um, put modems in sheds, for example, something up a bit higher and sort of away from those elevation challenges and beam internet back to houses as well. So the beauty about that is, is it opens up a lot of potential to um, do farm networking, whether that's putting a Wi-Fi, sorry, putting a security camera on a on a shed and being able to access that in a house or also um, being able to print in an office and, you know, in one building and, and um, have it sent to a printer in another building and so on. So where farmers predominantly would have relied on maybe having a, a modem in the shed and a modem in the house or, or whatnot, everything's interlinked. Um, so it's one modem. It doesn't matter where you are. You've got a good quality internet connection. So as a general catch-all, there's uh, there seems to be a solution to get you out of trouble as long as you've got enough money to throw at it, I guess. But but there there is a solution to to get you set up in for whatever circumstance you've got. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And and look, reality is is the cost of a lot of this equipment really has gone down. Um, you know, if we were talk to like talking about a point-to-point connection between the shed, um, it the hardware itself could be as low as $300 um, for both connections either side. A lot of the time is really making sure that you get your cabling right and get those dishes aligned and you follow Australian standards and you use a registered cabler to do it. So there is obviously cost behind that. What we tend to find is, is the installation actually is sort of, yeah, the same price as what the hardware is and a little bit more. So um, for $1,000, you can have your shed connected and your house connected and have a real good internet connection. So what sort of devices or things have you been plugging in to, to do stuff around the farm? Yeah, so um, over the last couple of years, we've actually tested, uh, the group has um, installed approximately 80 weather devices across nine brands. We're also managing 40 Wi-Fi devices and cameras and modems. So we've got, um, we've covered quite a fair bit of the technology range and brand um, and look, covering devices from um, sharing internet connection and, and Wi-Fi connections to weather stations to soil moisture probes to tank monitoring. And yeah, so all of that sort of internet connected stuff is quite exciting where you can go with it. It's just a matter of having a little bit of time to trial it. And yeah, what we see is, is that when people sort of install one or two weather stations, then it's not far after they start installing more. And what's sort of been the driver there? They're starting to see more variation than what they thought or or they're starting to use that data in their, in their decision-making? 
it's really a bit of both, to be honest, Nathan. What we've really seen is, is down in our area, we, we predominantly were relying on nine um, deep herd weather stations. And depending where you were in our membership zone, a, a weather station could be as close as, you know, on your farm up to 60 kilometres away. So, you know, if you're trying to make spray decisions and, and everything else, um, it is quite a tricky thing to do based on a weather station that's 60 k's away. The other challenge that we've got down here is also geographical. We've got Stirling Ranges to the north and just slightly south of that, we've got the Prongrups. And um, whilst there are a couple of deep herd stations in there, it just happens to be that we've got a bomb station to the south and a bomb station to the north of those ranges. So that whole middle area is not actually mapped or measured or taken into consideration when bomb do their forecasting. So if you're in the middle there, your forecasts typically aren't correct or they're just not informative enough and, you know, does the rain fall right at the ranges? Does it fall south of it? You know, which way, where does it fall if it's coming from, um, depending on where your wind's coming from and so on. So what we've been doing, uh, we've got roughly 25, uh, sorry, 23 devices at the moment, which utilise a technology called Hype Local Forecasting. And what that does is it's an internet connected platform. The weather stations record their climatic conditions every 15 minutes and get sent up to a server in the cloud. And those um, stations data are combined with BOM and DPIRD. And so what it effectively means is we've now got 30 weather stations that are plotting what's happening in the area. And those models are what they call self-learning. So it says, hey, look, in an hour's time, we predict it's going to be 25 degrees. The computer, uh, sorry, the weather station says, hey, no, it's 24 degrees and it's consistently one degree out. It shifts that model to be accurate. And what it effectively does is it gives us 36-hour and 15-day forecasts really quite accurately. And Nathan can have a bit more of a chat about it, but we've got members that are effectively making their nutrient decisions and fertiliser strategies based on upcoming rain quite accurately. I suppose to give it a bit more of a broader context, I always joke that the very first application that a farmer downloaded when they got a smart farm was the weather app, whatever it may be, whether it's weather zone or elders or otherwise. I guess when it came to technology, our group thought the smartest place to, I guess, create that initial interest and biggest bang for buck um, and most use is, is to improve weather forecasting. Because I think every farmer would tell you that if they knew what the weather was going to do or had a better idea, then they'd be able to make a whole range of decisions that would either save them money or make them money. So I guess that that was the context for starting with weather. And as Phil sort of rightly pointed out, this whole idea of linking a weather station on each farm or whoever wants to buy one, that you're not only buying your particular location, you're then getting any of the free weather data that you can get from BOM or DPIRD and then anyone else that's in the network, so long as they choose to share their data, um, your overall better result is is better than one and one equaling two. It's one and one getting two and a half or three. And the cool thing about, like what Phil said, because it's AI and self-learning, as years go by, we could expect that the, the forecasting should get better and better. And I'd really love to fast forward to five years' time to see where we're going to be, but I can't do that. Um, but in the short term, we can keep adding as many devices to our network and, and have that additive effect. And as uh, as Phil said, your farmers are starting to base their decisions, are starting to look at spreading fertiliser and, and that based on the forecast off, off this service? Well, I'll give you a really basic one. That When I was chatting to one of our smart farm hosts, now, because you can get a weather station feels better with prices, but say anywhere from $2,000 to $5,000, depending on how many add-ons you might have. The forecasting service that we use, I think, is $300 a year. 
one farmer said it was just so handy to know that, you know, you might see the weather coming in and it's looking like it might rain and you're filling up the spray tank or thinking about doing another mix. You know, you can get a bit of an idea of whether it's worth putting that tank out or not. I mean, you put one tank out and then it gets rained on. That that covers your your costs for <laughs> your forecast and subscription for the next five or ten years, depending on what you're spraying. So um, they're the basics. You know, even if you're really um, onto it or anal about you know you're spraying legalities like like you should be, um, just knowing exactly what your wind's doing at that particular moment and not trying to extrapolate from a station that's sixty kilometres away. Yeah, little things like that are where we're starting, and then. As you alluded to, I imagine as people get more and more confidence that, you know, hopefully it is going to rain in a week's time, you can start getting that top-up nitrogen out before the rain because we have a lot of farmers that typically wait until the, rain, the rains come and then then do their, their nitrogen. Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's an evolving beast, but we're starting with the basics. So you've, you've got some expected benefits where you think things will go um, in the future. Have there been some unexpected benefits um, that you've kind of found as you've got connectivity around the place? Look, I think one thing that we've really found is is that once people are hooked up to it, they really miss it if it doesn't work, which is probably the biggest benefit of it all. You know, it, it sort of brings back to the facts that, yeah, you know, you can actually see that there is a visible difference between um, having either improved connectivity or access to weather forecasting and everything else. I think the biggest thing just to consider really, Nathan, is is that behind everything, yes, there is a cost, but there can be actually quite a significant cost benefit as well. So things like tank level monitoring and, and also rain gauges to an extent, if you'd, you know, if you were to actually factor in the time that it takes to physically drive out to paddocks and, and check tanks or check rain gauges um, and actually work out the cost of it based on your, your actual time as an early rate and travel rate, what we found is is that you know things as simple as a, a tank level monitor can be paid off well and truly easily in a year, based off a trip every five days and as little as a k and a half away. You know we're talking about devices which can be six hundred dollars. Now, whilst you can consider that there is a you know there is that cost benefit saving in, in time and everything else, it's also there are other benefits as well. Like, um, sorry, improved animal welfare. So, you know, if you're running a feedlot or you're running livestock, knowing that you've run out of water early before finding out three or four days' time is quite significant. And, you know, there's also other things such as, you know, reallocation of effective work units. So there are better things to do on a farm than drive around doing tank runs every week. You might be able to do something else. So there is, yeah, sort of thinking outside the square and not necessarily looking completely at purchase price because yeah if you looked at purchase price purely on its own without thinking about where your potential savings are most people probably wouldn't buy it i guess that's the key thing nowadays is there's no shortage of tasks to do on a farm and and things that you should be doing and time you should probably spend in the office so yeah to be able to automate that and save that bit of time which could mean that at least you get to open the mail on time or um, or pay some bills when they need to be paid all those little things add up Especially, you know, look, we've got members that have, you know, could be 30 k's away from their main property and have remote properties as well. And just having that peace of mind that, you know, look, I can check the weather before I drive my sprayer down the road, absolutely full and realise it's already raining. So just little things like that, little um, menial tasks that obviously frustrate people. Let's make it easy. We've been shocked at the, the variability of the rainfall as just one thing, Nathan. Yeah. You inherently know there is that variability there, but we've just been shocked by how much that is. So I think in the future that will lead to 
changes of operations. What paddock am I going to spray first? What paddock am I going to get nitrogen on first? Again, hard to measure the benefit of something like that, but there will be benefits to that sort of thing. You know, it will probably get to the point where, okay, well, my nitrogen budget is X. Well, maybe I can throw a little bit more over on that block over there because that's had 30 mils more this year than we have here on the home place. Um, so reallocation of resources and things like that, I think will come into it quite easily. That'll be the first things that farmers do. And that obviously comes back, Nathan, you know, and we've done this in previous newsletters. You know, that variation in rainfall at the end of the day is is quite significant and you know if you're underestimating the actual amount of rainfall and, and your crop inputs you know because you think you've had you know 300 mils of rain and you've actually had 400 there's that yield potential and it's also the ability to um, target your quality there as well so if you know if you actually know that you've had 100 mils extra you can chase that nitrogen and, and make sure that you're actually bumping up your protein at the end of the year as well and you're not underfeeding it so we've had rainfall events um as early as this year where we've had 20 to 30 mils um, difference in rainfall um, over a weekend and we're talking properties that might only be 5Ks away. So it is quite phenomenal. And obviously, you know, one of those things that you always get is is when you get a whole network and some of our members basically can see almost um, 15 to 20 weather stations nearby, they look at the variation, they go, oh, that machine's not ready or right. But, you know, we go out there and calibrate and go, yep, no, it's actually reading right, guys. Like, you actually have had this much variation. And it's just, yeah, it's unbelievable to look at. I'm sure the uh, the ranges in, in your area and the elevation that, you know, all uh, impact on your on your weather patterns. But it, it's the same thing across the West Midlands region. And, you know, we have one trial site where we're quite high up in the landscape and, and we can actually see right down the, the valley that, that, that runs through Bajangara and, um you know, just sit there and watch the, the different storm clouds come through. And, you know, we, we were sitting there one day and 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 we would, it was sunshine and then we went down the end of the road about 3Ks and it was mud and, um, and one of our other trial sites just had 15 mil of rain. So, mm. you know, being able to pick that up and then to be able to measure and, and put your nitrogen in the right spot, yeah, it, it makes sense going yeah. into the future. And we're utilising a lot of this data now actually at trial sites. So a lot of the trials that we do, we try and put a weather station at you know, we're not relying on tiny tags, which might fail over a season, not necessarily saying that that's what they normally do, but um, just actually being able to see what's happening throughout the whole season and, you know, measuring frost at potential frost events or um, growing degree days. It just gives you a whole heap of extra information beyond sort of a, a year-to-date rainfall value that most trial sites would actually get. So, so Nathan, what's the interest or the adoption been like across your membership and, and in the region? Are, are people, are farmers getting excited or they're interested about it? Yeah, they're definitely interested, but it's slower than you'd think. And I think that's because, you know, it's a new cost. So people are going to be sceptical, you know, why do I need this weather station when I've already had all these other weather stations? You know, I've had the free ones for 100 years. So I guess it's a little bit about proving the value. And as people dip their toe in the water, um, and that's one of the reasons we, we use the Grower Group projects that we have, we put stations in at our trial site as a bit of a sweetener for those and a thank you for those that are um, hosting sites, just as a way of an introduction to get them there quicker. And and then from there, quite often, they, like Phil said, they either buy their own, they keep that one, and it grows. So, yeah, there's a little bit of a step in getting people to make that that first purchase. And then from there, it's sort of growing. So it's, like I said, we're starting with the basics, like we've talked about, weather stations, soil moisture probes, water tank sensors, 
again, being as south as we are, I don't think the water tank ones are, are going to be as quick or as valued as, say, if you're in station country, obviously, um, where you're driving hundreds of kilometres to check a, a trough or whatever, but still really useful. And, and like Phil said, in those scenarios, say a feedlot or whatever, it doesn't happen very often, but if you lost all your water from your troughs, you'd want to know about that as soon as possible. So your, your cattle or your sheep or whatever you're growing um, don't suffer any ill effects. I always like to look at the bigger picture and, and where we're going in the future, but I guess a question for both of you is what does fully connected look like for you? That is definitely a question for Phil who has his head in this space much more than me. Uh, look, I think real honest answer is is probably more office work. Um, sitting in a real internet-connected office with five or six screens, watching tractors move up and down paddocks, you know, decisions based on harvestability, based on weather stations and locations and uh, crop simulation, you know, look, where does it end? What do we call the future? Are we talking two years, 10 years, 20? But no, look, rise and advent of robotics is really quite interesting. You know, obviously with John Deere and the likes, um, commercially releasing it, obviously uh, a lot of work's um, happening with SwarmBot as well. So. Robotics is probably the first driver. Personally, I don't probably see them happening for the next couple of years at least, but, you know, we've got a couple of years to sort of bolster a few other things like connectivity and all those other things which are really important um, as the precursor of adoption for robotics are really excited. We probably have more engineering degrees rather than a science degree, but, yeah, look, let's see where it goes, Nathan. I would just add, Phil, that I think there's there's pretty good models out there. So, I mean, as part of our future drought fund, you know, we've got the farming forecast and model we're looking at. So that's all about pasture growth and where it sits today and then where is it going to sit depending on how much rainfall we get in the next two, three months. In the future, I'd love to have, um, you know, same with your cropping, so your, your wheat, barley, canola or your lupins or whatever you're growing, you know, a daily scoreboard that's showing this is what your yield potential is. For this crop based on you know the rain we've had and the soil conditions um so modeling all of that again phil i don't know how many years off that is probably more than two put it that way but it could be five or ten it might not be as far away as people might think that i think would be really exciting well 10 years time we'll have the metaverse so, uh, <laughs> that, that'll uh, throw up again and, and uh, you know new opportunities and um I'm just thinking back, you know, if we look back in in the past, um, yeah, to back to the future, we should all have hoverboards about now. So um, <laughs> we're, we're a little bit behind and, and I guess the, the key message there is we don't really know what's coming up in the future. But I think like, that's been a really good look into, you know, those first few steps and, and just what you've been doing as a, as a grower group to improve connectivity and start to explore some of the uh, the base technologies that need to be put in place. And, and as we've just kind of explored then, it, it then enable, once you've got that base down, it actually enables you to then start exploring things like automation and robotics and and the likes. I'll end with a question that we ask in most of our podcasts um, for each of you. What keeps you interested in agriculture? I think the dynamic change. It's always changing, Nathan. It's exciting. Technologies, new technologies are coming out. Um, existing methods are improved. I think it's the change. But it's funny. I was going to say something very similar, Phil, so I'll, <laughs> I'll change it. 
When you hear the, uh, you know, if you've ever heard a lecture on the, the population bomb or the explosion, you know, what the world population is going to top out at 10 billion by 2050 or something like that. And, you know, every conference we go to, they talk about how much food that we're going to have to grow uh, just to meet those, that 10 billion, 10 billion population need. I always feel really confident that we, we actually will have the answers in agriculture. I still see a lot of production improvements in everything we do. So again, it gets back to that change, but we just constantly got to be getting better and, and we're a long way off um, answering all the questions that we need answers to in research, etc. That brings us to the end of this episode. Thanks to Nathan and Phil for being so generous with their time and knowledge. The best way to receive our updates and stay in the loop with the latest in local research and results is by becoming a West Midlands Group member. Our members are an essential part of why we do what we do and we pride ourselves on ensuring members like you receive relevant, innovative information. You'll save hours of your valuable time with easy access to the most relevant and up-to-date information you really need. A membership gets you early access to our workshops, free or discounted entry for up to three farm business members to our major events, exclusive access to our member-only publications like our technical newsletter, The West Midlands Group Quarterly. For more info, visit our website where you can sign up at any time. I'd like to thank our sponsors and members, without whom this would not be possible. See you next time for some more paddock chat. Local knowledge from a paddock near you.